Well, this evening, as I said, we look to Lord's Day 5 in our catechism. That's on page 12 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. But first, I'd like to read with you from Luke 23. Now, we read at Easter time a passage that's parallel to this, that talks about the, the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross for us. But I wanted to read this evening from Luke 23 because it relates a a particular aspect of that suffering that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. But we're going to start reading at verse 26 of Luke 23, and we'll go through verse 49. Now, as they led Jesus away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now summarizing God's word, Lord's Day 5 responds to the message that we've heard in Lord's Days 2 through 4. The message that we all are sinful from our earliest days. That we therefore are under the curse of God's wrath, that we deserve His wrath, and that He would be just to destroy us. And so Lord's Day 5 says, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment, both in this world and forever after. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? And the answer is, God requires that His justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of His justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. 
Well, then can we pay this debt ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day, our guilt every day. So can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish another creature for man's guilt. And besides, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal anger against sin and release others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? He must be truly human and truly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, he must also be true God. Amen. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we are guilty. That's the conclusion to which we must come, having considered together the truths of God's Word as they're summarized in Lord's Days 2 through 4. We have sinned despite the fact that God designed and made us good and in His own image. Our sins have become an unrighteous offense in the eyes of our righteous God. And as such, our sins demand a just punishment. We are guilty and our guilt must be punished. That's where Lord's Day 5 begins. And it's where we must begin if we're to have any hope whatsoever. We must begin with our guilt, with an honest, open, no-holds-barred acknowledgement that we deserve God's wrath. We can't sugarcoat it. We can't make excuses. Kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? We, we find ourselves caught for doing something wrong, and we always want to try to minimize it. That's what comes natural to us, right? We want to find some excuse, some way to justify ourselves, some way to make others look worse. But the catechism, reflecting the wisdom of the Bible, tells us we may not do that before God. We must acknowledge our guilt. The worthiness that we have of God's judgment. That we have no hope of approaching God on our own without being utterly and completely condemned. That's where we have to start, with that humility. And then we need to ask the twofold question with which Lord's Day 5 begins. First of all, how then can we escape this punishment? We deserve God's wrath. That's a simple, straightforward fact. We've earned God's condemnation, so is there any way of escape? Is there any way by which we might get away from this punishment that we deserve? It's the cry of a man on death row. It's the plea of a prisoner blindfolded and stood before the firing squad. Is there no hope? Is there no way for me to, to escape? But if that was all we asked, that would be a selfish question. The question of a child who's gotten caught with his hand in the cookie jar and simply wants a do-over. So we need to ask the second part of that question. Not only how can I escape this punishment, but also how can I return to God's favor? Because we were not made simply to enjoy God's blessings. We were made to serve God. We were made to increase His glory. We were made to be His beloved servants and children. And sin ruined us to that end. So we need to ask not only how can I escape the wrath of God on my sin, but also how can I be returned to God's favor? How can I be restored to the purpose for which I was made? That's the question with which Lord's Day 5 begins. That's the question with which we, brothers and sisters, must begin. And Lord's Day 5 
Well, it answers that question. First, by setting out the qualifications, the, the requirements that must be met if we are to escape God's judgment and be restored to His favor. And then it answers wisely. It answers the questions that our forefathers knew we would first ask once we saw those requirements. The, the means of escape and restoration that we would in immediately seek out so that we can ultimately come to the true solution, to the true escape and restoration. God's perfect justice demands full payment of our debt. That's the theme here. Now we're going to consider at great length next week, Lord willing, what that escape and restoration looks like, how that debt is going to be paid, but we need to consider today what needs to happen and where can we find it. God's perfect justice demands full payment of our debt. And as we consider that, the first thing we see is that this is a debt that is unpayable by us. Jesus spoke of our sins as debts. That's an extremely apt metaphor. You know what a debt is, children? It's when you owe someone something, right? If you see that toy that you've been saving up for in the store and you go with, with mom and dad to the store and you see that, that the toy is on sale. You have almost enough money. And you pull out your money and you count it up and it turns out you're $5 short, right? And you say, Dad, can I have $5 more so I can buy it? And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll loan it to you. I'll loan it to you. You know, summer's coming up. Maybe you can do some odd jobs. You can earn $5. I'll loan you the $5. So he pulls out $5 from his wallet, lets you buy that toy. Now you have a debt to your dad for that $5, right? You owe him that $5. At some point, you need to figure out how to earn that money and give it back to him. Until then, you owe that to him. Well, that's what our sin creates between us and God, a debt. But not a debt of money. We have offended God's honor. We have destroyed ourselves for God's service. We owe a debt to His justice. And our first thought when we hear that we have a debt is, well, let me figure out how to pay that. And that's right. Right? That's the right thing to do. When you have a debt, you try to pay it off. That's what we teach our children. You borrow something, you repay it. If you incur a debt of some sort, you work hard until it's paid off. We try to live that principle, don't we? We buy a house, but we buy one that's within our means so that we can easily pay off the mortgage payment every month until it's ours free and clear. You decide to start a business or to expand your business. You take a loan from the bank, but then you work faithfully to repay that loan. You receive your Christian school tuition bill in the mail, and you, you don't complain about it. You don't try to get out of it. You work and you pay it off. So it's natural when we consider the debt incurred by our sin that we look first to ourselves. But our catechism shows us that we have a few problems when we look to ourselves. First problem is that we're insufficient to pay the price. We're pretty quick to confess our sin, and that's good. We need to do that. We need to acknowledge that we have done wrong. 
But have you considered the cost of that confession? Every so often, one, one of those whom we love, a family member, a friend at church, comes down with some dreaded disease. And what's our temptation in terms of response when that happens? Aren't we tempted to shake our heads and fetch a deep sigh and wonder why? Why that person? I mean, he's such a good, a good man. He helps so many people. He's been such a faithful servant of the Lord. Why would such a bad thing happen to such a good man? We're tempted to cry out with Job, Why, O oh Lord, why would you bring such a thing against such an, a person undeserving? But when we give in to that, or even are tempted to cry out at the injustice of such suffering by those who seem so good. When we do that, we, we tip our hand a little bit. We say that we believe in total depravity. But we don't recognize that because of our sin, because of our depravity, we deserve whatever suffering we might receive and far more. We shouldn't be crying out at the injustice of one or two or a handful of people among us suffering from heart disease or cancer or illness or injury. We should be expecting that every one of us would be filled with pain and suffering every moment of every day because that's what our sin deserves, that and far more. We ought to be asking, why aren't we all doubled over with ceaseless pain? Why aren't we all bearing the suffering that our sins deserve? Why has God given us the reprieve that we have received? Why has our debt not been, given, uh, or not been demanded of us? We read this passage from Luke 23 because I wanted us to consider these criminals at Jesus' side. That man who mocked him and then cried out to Jesus. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. That wasn't spoken lightly. It's hard for us to even imagine how deep the suffering of the cross was. They didn't just take a man out of his prison cell and throw him up on the cross. No, he didn't get to the cross until he had already spent hours, a long sleepless night being punished and abused and beaten and flogged. By the time they finally laid the cross on his shoulder and told him, start walking, he was so weak with blood loss that he could barely see straight. His muscles protested the very act of walking, much less carrying the heavy wooden cross member that would destroy him. And then when they got him out there, they took iron spikes and they ran it through this. The hand, by the way, was defined as that which goes all the way up to the elbow. It was right at the base of the palm that they would put that nail, right where all of the nerves come together into a bundle. And that's where they would put that spike. And they would put it on each side and then they would cross over the feet and they would put a spike there right where the, the nerves gathered the closest. And then, with his back already ripped raw from the punishment he had taken, he was lifted up in, in front of the hot sun. This was agony of a sort that we can't even and, and don't desire to imagine. 
Sometimes we see images of a cross and it has a little place for the feet to stand. There was no place for the feet to stand. You hung by those three spikes and you couldn't draw a breath without lifting yourself up a little bit so your diaphragm could work, which meant all your weight hanging all the more strongly on those spikes. It was excruciating agony when he said, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. It was mockery, but it was also a desperate plea. Get us down from here. I can't handle this anymore. I can't take it anymore. But it was also mockery. And well did his neighbor admonish him and say, Do you not fear God? We are under the same condemnation as he is, and we justly, we deserve it. We did what we were convicted of doing, and he has done nothing wrong. That criminal on the cross, he recognized that it, what they were being punished for was righteous. They, they deserved to be punished. They deserved this wrath. And folks, so do we all. That's what we all deserve. It destroyed, it destroyed them. And if we received what we deserve, it would destroy us. We can't pay that debt on our own. And we have an even greater problem because, because not only can we not pay the debt that we owe, but our debt continues to grow. Isaiah 59. The prophet wrote, Of God's own people, Your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue has muttered perversity. A little further down he says, Their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. This is not the sins of pagans that he's describing. It's the sins of Israel, the sins of God's people, the sins of the church. And that's what comes natural to all of us. Sinful thoughts, sinful desires, sinful words, sinful deeds. We're like a man who bought a house that's a bit more of a house than they should have bought. He saw this house and it was the house of his dreams. And he knew he couldn't quite afford it, but he figured he's about due for a raise, so I'm just going to take the plunge. But it's more debt than he could afford, so he's struggling. He can just barely make the payments, and even that he's not doing all that well. But then something tragic happens. A neighbor trips and falls on his sidewalk, and he sues him, sues him for everything, and he wins. And now the debt that he could barely manage is absolutely swollen beyond what he could ever hope to pay. That's terrible. It's far more than he can imagine. But then when he's at his darkest moment, he loses his job. He gets fired for cause. So there's not even an unemployment check. So now he can't even pay for his basic living expenses, much less the mortgage, much less the payment on the lawsuit. Now he's racking up credit card debt at 24% interest every day just so he can pay for his family to eat. That's the debt of our sin. Not only is the debt that we already owe infinitely more than we could hope to pay, not only are we unable to meet any one of the payments, but we're racking up more debt every day than we can even count. Now ask yourself, how will you get out of that debt? How will you even begin to pay? You don't have a way of earning anything in God's sight. Everything that you do is... Well, just beyond that in Isaiah 64... The prophet says we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. Even the righteous things we do, even the best that we do before God, 
is absolutely, utterly unacceptable in His sight. So now how are we going to pay that debt that we continue to accumulate? We cannot. It is a debt unpayable by us. And so what is our inclination? It's to look around and see who else nearby could help out. That's natural, right? As much as possible, we want to limit our exposure. We want to limit our shame. So we look around to those nearby and say, who then might be able to help me? Perhaps a faithful creature, an animal of some sort. Perhaps even another man, a neighbor, a close friend. Someone who loves me. Who might pay my debt? Among the options, animals are probably the most attractive. For one thing, they they can't really gossip and tell others how great our debt was. And some of them, like horses and dogs, would probably willingly pay the price for us. But there are two significant problems. First of all, God will not accept them. Animals are not human. Men have sinned. Men have racked up the debt. God demands the payment come from man. That's just. That's right. So God will not accept them for our debt. Hebrews 10 says it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. They can point us to what our true sacrifice needs to do, to how the debt needs to be paid, but they can't do it themselves. And even if God would receive their punishment on our behalf, they couldn't do it. Because they would have to accept the weight of God's eternal wrath against all our sins. And that would utterly, completely wipe out, destroy, and obliterate any animal that would stand in our place. So an animal will not do. But what about at the opposite extreme? What about an angel? After all, they have a relationship with God that's far more like our relationship with God than that of an animal. But still they are not like us. They are spirits having a presence, but not of the sort that we have. They are are great creatures, magnificent creatures that cause fear in men. But they are not made in the image of God. They are ultimately less than human beings. So as with animals, so with angels, God will not accept their payment. And again, even if they were willing, they could not. Even an angel as great, as magnificent, as amazing a creature as it is would be utterly obliterated by God's wrath. Neither animals nor angels can erase the debt that imprisons us. So might then, might then the answer lie in the middle path of a man. Men and women have sinned. What if we could convince a person to stand in our place? That would solve part of the problem, wouldn't it? God would accept them as our substitute. but not if they have sin. Because then they have their own debt to pay. And it's just as unpayable for them as it is for us. So we got to find that perfect man. I know a lot of really great people, but not one of them is perfect. In fact, Romans 3 makes it pretty clear There is none righteous, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And even if we could find one who had avoided sin, one who was not stained by the guilt of Adam's sin, even if we could find that one, he's still a creature. He's still going to be obliterated by God's wrath. We sang Psalm 49. 
And we sang it for the reason that we might be reminded of what Psalm 49 verses 7 and 8 tells us. Among men, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly and it shall cease forever. It's far greater than any man could pay. Not an animal, not an angel, not another mere man is sufficient to pay our debt. It's a debt utterly unsuitable for creatures. And so we're left scratching our heads. What now? We want to be delivered from God's wrath. We want to be restored to God's favor and to, our, to His purpose for us. But for that to happen, a very real, very costly debt must be paid. And there's no one who's suitable. There's no one who's able. So is then there no hope for escape from our punishment and return to God's favor? There's not. Until we look up. We need a mediator. One who is able to come between our perfect, just, righteous God and us, His sinful, weak, debt-enslaved creatures. We need a mediator between God our judge and us who can restore us despite our debt and who can fill up that yawning chasm between us and our Heavenly Father. But the requirement for that mediator is utterly unique. He must be fully, completely, and truly human. One of us, made in the image of God, without any sin, and yet he must be truly God. Because no mere creature can withstand the weight of God's wrath. Now we're going to talk more about what that mediator must look like next week. But understand that the requirements for meeting this debt, for paying off this debt, are the requirements of a miracle. Not a little miracle. A miracle that makes turning water into wine look like child's play. A miracle that makes the straightening of twisted legs, the giving of sight to blinded eyes, the loosing of a long silent tongue look like parlor tricks by comparison. We need the miracle because we need to find the one man who is utterly and completely sinless and who is willing to stand in our place and who is able, amazing, to, who is able to withstand the wrath of God on behalf of our sin. And God promised to be that mediator. Isaiah 59, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him. His own righteousness, it sustained him. God himself would be our mediator. He would be the one to work salvation. He would be the one to pay the debt. His own righteousness sustaining Him in the process. And He assures us the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. We deserve the complete, destroying, unthinkably great wrath of God against our sin. That's the price of justice. That's the depth of our debt. And that is what Jesus paid on the cross. The penitent criminal at his side confessed truth. 
when He confessed the accursedness of the cross to be exactly what He deserved. And yet that accursed cross is what Jesus embraced even though as the criminal Himself confessed, this man has done nothing wrong. God Himself bore witness that He was bearing the full weight of our debt when He shut off the lights from 9 o'clock in the morning until noon. He darkened the land, demonstrating that He had turned aside from Jesus. That is the depth of death. That is the essence of hell for the, the blessing of God's presence to be cast off so that Jesus would have to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then at the end of that time, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, giving access into the throne room of God, demonstrating that there now was a way through. The debt had been paid. And now it was possible for men to enter fully into the presence of God. Only, only because Jesus paid that debt so unique in its requirement. Only because Jesus had now entered into the presence of God for us. Seeing it all, the centurion spoke what was absolutely right and true. He looked on Jesus' broken body and said, Surely this was a righteous man. And it was because of the payment that this righteous man who is fully God made for us that Jesus could assure that repentant criminal, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise because Jesus was paying his debt Jesus was taking His justice and also ours if we're trusting in Him. And so if we trust in Jesus, if we look to Him as the one who will pay our debt, has paid our debt, then to us He says, Assuredly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Again, we'll see next week, Lord willing, the nature of this one who came as our mediator. How he alone could pay our debt, stand in our place and reconcile us to God. But for today, we need to recognize that he has done it. He has paid the debt. He has done everything necessary to bring about complete reconciliation between sinners and the righteous God. And therefore, we must believe that He has done it. We must trust Him who did it. We must receive His glorious, amazing blessing with thankful hearts. Trust in Christ, brothers and sisters. And God will revoke your death row sentence and welcome you into His courts with joy. Not, not as those condemned, not as those who deserve His wrath, but as His beloved children in Christ. God's perfect justice demands full payment for our debt and Jesus paid it all. Let us therefore trust in Him and give Him all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank You and we praise You that You have given us the gracious gift that alone would deliver us and that we had no right to, re to request. Teach us to trust in Jesus. And to stand in awe each day that you would love us that much. That you would deliver us at that great a price. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.